0: for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. to a town in the, in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you young among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble stay of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him, from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. This is the word of God for the people of God.
1: Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. Thank you, Lucy. Well, you know, it's a, it can be a very stressful time of the year. Some of you are stressed in advance about the family gatherings that you will be attending this week. If that is you, you're probably in good company. Not me, of course, because my mother's in the room right here. I do hope that, you're being well, that you are well. The, the, the season of Thanksgiving and Advent and Christmas can be difficult for many people, especially uh, for those who've suffered loss. And it could be that you're here and you've had a loss this year. There will be a person uh, who you love who will not be at the table this year. Um, And and that hurts. And so the holidays have a little bit of a sting to them. And I pray that there will be some sweetness in it for you as well. Uh, I don't know if we have a lot of people uh, meeting more and more people who are moving to Tulsa for Tulsa Remote and folks who are doing Christmas here but not around their friends and family. And that can be kind of a, a difficulty. I don't know if you're here and you're at home among your people or you're feeling ill at ease among strangers. I don't know if you're here and you just feel peaceful and joyful in your heart because uh, you're you're doing what you're built to do. You're worshiping with God's people. Things are good in your in your life or maybe you're here and your blood pressure is up just being in a church uh, or, or knowing the fame the holidays are coming. I don't know if you believe the things that we believe. Or maybe you're struggling to believe the things that we believe, or maybe you vehemently disagree with the things that we believe. I just want to say, I don't think that anybody is here by mistake. I think the Lord has been at work, drawing us in toward Himself and toward community, and so I want to say to each and every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, you're welcome, you're wanted, and I'm glad that you're here. So this is, the holidays can be a very difficult time, and and we make it harder because uh, human beings can be so mean and I, I do think that it is a hard time to be a person. Perhaps everyone in all of human history has said that. I mean, at least we've got running water and toilets and things like that. Air conditioning is nice. But I do think it's a difficult time to be a person. Uh, we're living in, I think we could all agree, what, what is an age of outrage? Everybody is outraged about something all of the time. We're outraged about the president. We're outraged about Congress. We're outraged about what's going on in the Supreme Courts. We're outraged about the things that they're teaching in schools or the things that they're not teaching in schools. We're outraged about other people's perpetual outrage. It's an age of outrage and it can be quite exhausting. We're also living in an age of cruelty. Cruelty. I mean, people are very cruel toward other people in their, hum- in, in their humor, just cutting people's legs out from underneath them, or cruel toward those who think differently, cruel towards strangers on the internet. I remember a couple of years ago, I wrote an op-ed for the Tulsa World, and as it came out, I sent a text to my family and I said, "Here's the first rule of me doing anything in public: don't read the comments." And I think generally speaking, don't read the comments is a good philosophy of life. And don't be the person who leaves a comment because they're always cruel. We live in an age of cruelty. We're often cruel proactively because other people are naturally cruel. They're cruel because we're cruel. To to be cruel is to willfully cause pain to other people and to feel no concern for their well-being. And cruelty is increasingly the American vernacular. It's the language that we readily speak. It's an age of outrage. It's an age of cruelty. And it's also an age of seriousness, where everything is serious all the time. And I don't, I mean, there are things that we should take seriously, but this is chronic seriousness. This is the kind of seriousness where it's like you're in the garage with the car running and a single inflammatory word could set the whole thing ablaze. Every conversation we have is life or death. People are quite naturally offended by something that we might say. The stakes, when everything is serious, are always sky high. It's an age of of cruelty. It's an age of outrage. It's an age of seriousness. And immersed in a world like this, uh, we read this passage from Luke chapter 1, or maybe on Saturday you'll read the birth narrative of Jesus from Luke chapter 2. And And in an age of outrage and cruelty and seriousness, a couple of things about uh, this text that Lucy just read for us really strike me. The first thing that's striking to me in hearing that story, which for many of you may be familiar, is its beauty. I'm struck by beauty. The gospel could have begun in any number of ways. But the gospel begins with the story of two pregnant women, one older and one younger, The older one, Elizabeth, had given up on the possibility of having a baby, having never never successfully conceived with her husband, Zechariah. The younger one has a meaningful hurdle to overcome because she's not married and she's never slept with a man, and yet both of them end up pregnant by divine providence. Now, the story of Luke begins with the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah. Zachariah is a priest. He's serving in the temple, and an angel appears to him and says, your wife Elizabeth's going to get pregnant. And it kind of reminds us of Abram and Sarai. They're getting old in years. You think they're kind of beyond getting pregnant. And, and Zechariah is very slow to believe, and the angel said, the consequence of that is you're not going to talk for nine months, which may be a good rule of thumb for, like, husbands of pregnant wives. <laughs> it's like, just shut up. Just listen to her for the next nine, ten months. And so he, he has to listen, and, and um, God comes through on his promise, and, and Elizabeth uh, is pregnant. Uh, after that, we have the story of the angel appearing to Mary, and Mary is, is unlike Zachariah, is quick to believe. Uh, she's this, this young girl. Maybe she's about Lucy's age. I don't know, a, a young teenager, and she does what the priest couldn't do. She believed quickly what the angel had said to her. said, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to his will. The story goes on and, and Elizabeth and Mary, these two women pregnant against the odds, uh, are, are cousins and they connect with one another and Mary goes to uh, talk to her cousin to share their joy and, uh, and they're, they're overwhelmed by the goodness that they get to experience together. They're both dev- pregnant by divine providence. I think it's beautiful that the gospel starts with these two pregnant women because pregnancy is such a primal thing. And, and you may not know just how how primal it is until it, it comes close to you, whether it's your own pregnancy or your spouse or a family member that's close to you. The, the, there's, there's a kind of awe surrounding pregnancy. It brings out some of our deepest, deepest and most closely held emotions, whether that's disappointment surrounding a pregnancy, the, 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 the inability to get pregnant, or maybe you'll, you're, you've, you'll never get married and, and you won't have a child in the way that you desire to, or maybe... Uh, you lost a pregnancy like so many of us experienced and that primal emotion of disappointment just uh, aches on the inside of you sometimes pregnancy can elicit that that primal emotion of fear when a person gets uh, pregnant and they weren't expecting to or or even in some cases weren't hoping to and they think what am i going to do with this new reality and pregnancy can also elicit and evoke in us this deep sense of, of joy Uh, This is something I so deeply wanted. There's a life growing inside me. What a unique experience for a woman to get to share. On five occasions have I gotten to be in labor and delivery um, with a kid that was half me. On four of those occasions do we get to bring that baby home. And And it's a surreal and a holy experience to be in a room like that. I'm in awe of... Of the men and women who work and labor and delivery and some of the the challenging and amazing situations that can come out of that ward but I, I would say that I am a sentimental person but but I'd emphasize that being in that room and those spaces are some of the most precious memories I have in life and it evokes in you this sense of awe and wonder like wow this thing that just happened and every time, against my will, just cry and put my head on Emily's like, oh my gosh, this kid is here. We've never found out gender ahead of time, so it's always been a surprise, and I'll, remember, I'll never forget when Libby, our oldest, who's standing right here singing her guts out, when Libby was born, um, I remember she, she was born, we realized, it's Libby! And we Emily and I just cried on each other, and they brought her over to the table to, to weigh her and to measure her, and I remember just getting down and those big brown eyes locked with mine and she was, her, her, her tongue was very verbal, a sign of the things to come. <laughs> she is a talker. She's constantly needing snacks. She's got the fastest metabolism on planet Earth. And this girl and I met eyes and, and she was so engaged and it was a holy moment. It was, it was amazing. In our outraged and cruel and serious world, beauty like this can pierce our hearts. And the gospel begins with this beauty twice over. Mary and Elizabeth Cousins are pregnant with God's plans to bless the world. I'm struck by beauty. In thinking about the passage, I'm also struck by the joy inherent in the passage. There's joy just overflowing. When these women get together, there's this trigger of elation, a thrill of hope. Elizabeth reports that when she hears Mary's greeting, the baby in her leaped and she was filled with the Holy Spirit. She explained that the the, the baby, hearing Mary's greeting and nearness to its cousin, leaped for joy. Uh, Elizabeth was overcome with joy. Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, I don't know how the whole textual thing got put together. Did Mary just have this song spontaneously flow from her heart? I like to think that it was something like that. I don't know, but it was marked by these feelings of intense joy. The good news of what God was building in their bodies caused them to feel in a, a deep elation and joy. Now, If you've been around the last couple of weeks, I have been painting a rather dark picture of Advent. Now, I I, I burst some of your bubbles when I shared that, you know, many people share these Advent candles and they talk about the candle of light and hope and peace and joy. And I shared the slightly darker version from the medieval period where the candles were something like hell, heaven, death, and judgment, (laughs) It can be a bit of a dark season. It's a season of repentance, certainly ahead of the second coming of Christ, but we can't help but capture some of the joy when we talk about the season looking forward to Christmas and mindful of the second coming of Christ. Often in the season of Advent, we go to the prophets, especially the prophet Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah talked about the joy that was to come when the Messiah appeared. We have hallmark texts like the one from Isaiah chapter 9.1 says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In a world that's dark, living in an age of outrage and cruelty and seriousness, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, God humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. He's talking about the northern part of Israel, the region around the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus would later be born, where he would later grow up in Nazareth. But in the future, God will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of darkness, a light has dawned. You've enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. He's going to employ some metaphors here. As warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, he's referring to an Old Testament story, you've shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. In terms of, like, the, the whole economy surrounding war and all the accoutrements of war and violence will be a thing of the past. They will be destroyed and retired. They will no longer be needed. Why? For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's joy. He talks about joy like the joy at a harvest. When you get that bonus check, that's awesome. Or when you're landing in, when you're living in a subsistence economy, and like, yay, there is stuff to eat this season. There's joy. There's joy when you get to retire the, the, the accoutrements of battle. There's joy when you get to divide the plunder. There's joy like a baby being born. All of this evokes images of joy. Three chapters later in Isaiah 12, he, he uses, there's this great, great line. He says, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. It's evocative imagery. With joy, you'll enjoy God's plenty. And then you go to Isaiah chapter 61. This is a text that Jesus read. It was the assigned text at synagogue for a person to read. He got up and he read it, and he said, This is fulfilled in your hearing. He said, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. These images of exchanging beauty for ashes, ashes, sackcloth and ashes, you think period of mourning, he's going to give them a new garment to cloak them. Exchange their mourning for joy. Joy again and again shows up at, at the sign of like where the Messiah is at work. The people are overcome with joy. I think about joy being an evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. I, I, I like to use my brain. I like to love the Lord with my brain. And I, and I, I want to think really well. I want to have a good systematized understanding of the world. Know how to put everything in good categories. But what a waste if, if, I, don't, if I don't effervesce with joy. If as followers of Jesus, we proclaim to to know and to be stewards of the greatest news the world has ever received, and yet we're like grouches all the time, We're, we're joining everyone else and being outraged about everything or outraged about the loss of our rights, and we're all just crotchety and grouchy. What an utter waste. We should be the most joyful people on the planet. Most of the time, and especially looking at these texts that we've considered, joy is an indirect byproduct of something else. Mary and Elizabeth have joy because of this thing that God is birthing in them. Isaiah had experienced and foresaw joy because of the end of exile, because of the birth of the Messiah. And I would say that I think joy may be the most compelling argument that we have for the way of Jesus in in an age of outrage and cruelty and seriousness. And I think while there are many things that should sober us up, I think there are many things about which we should be very serious. I also think we should be characterized by joy, and we should take seriously, we should be serious about asking the Lord to birth fresh joy in us. You may find that you have a little extra time this week or next week, and I would just urge you to to make some time to read the Gospels and ask the Lord to help you to see the beauty of the Gospels and cause it to sprout fresh joy in your heart. I think of some of my favorite uh, older mentors, some of my favorite people on planet Earth are my favorites because they're the most joyful people I know who have a really easy laugh and a great smile. And you know it's because they haven't, it's not because they haven't been weather tested. It's because they've been through some of the greatest storms of life and found that God is trustworthy. And so on the other side of some of those difficulties, they have this natural smile or, or laughter or mirth, to use a great word because they found that God is trustworthy and things are going to be okay. That trust in Him leads to this deep sense of joy. I'm struck by the beauty in the passage and and the story. I'm struck by the joy intrinsic to the coming of Christ. And and I'm also struck by the innocence of belief that we see in the story. The innocence of belief. Elizabeth said of her cousin Mary, verse 45, blessed is she that... (laughs) I, I, it just occurred to me, was she like subtweeting at her husband? Blessed is she that believed what the Lord would said, say to her? <laughs> Unlike some Zechariah, <laughs> Blessed is she that believed the Lord would keep his promise. I love that. Um, there's this songwriter named Andy Golihorn who has got a really great song called Is It Real? Uh, the first verse is not pertinent to this conversation, but it's so funny. Do you want to hear it? he said there's the I was wondering at the first service whether this was appropriate but I enjoyed it so that's enough for me the verse starts there's a man who looks like Donald Trump ahead of me in the communion line I know that I'm supposed to keep my mind on better things but his hair looks like a helmet of gold glued on by a three-year-old and nothing makes it move so I can't help wondering is it real goes on to be a song about communion (laughs) as you would normally guess right but uh the bridge of the song says "Uh, one night me and my teenage son were reading a book that was given to us helpful tips for growing up well that's what it was supposed to be the author said in chapter two that believing in god isn't hard to do my son said dad that isn't true and i had to agree i had to agree innocent belief or what some people might, might critically say, naive belief is hard to come by these days. Blessed is she who believed that the Lord would fulfill His promise to her. There are lots of reasons why it can be difficult to believe the story. Virgin getting pregnant. Never seen that before. There, there are lots of things that make it difficult to believe, but one of them, just the complexity of our world. We know so many things. We've, we've got the, you know... 10 times the Library of Alexandria in our pockets. We have access to all kind of information. We're reading this text that is millennia old. There are lots of things that make it difficult to believe. She's right there. Hi guys. Owners of the kingdom of God, right there. So many things that make it, make it difficult to believe. We grow up and we lose the, that innocence. It's like, I'm just going to run in the room. <laughs> we try to save face. We, we make it really difficult uh, to believe. And, and I think there are many people right now in this room and folks who are close to you who are deconstructing their faith. And I think to deconstruct something shoddily built is a worthy exercise. If you realize after living in your house for a couple of years that the builder did a terrible job on some aspects of it, it's sensible to replace it and fix it. If standing on the floor, the floor can't support the weight of the people in your family, it makes sense to replace the floor. Deconstruction can be an incredibly healthy practice, especially if it's followed by reconstruction. It's sensible to rebuild things that are are shoddily constructed. But I do think it's, it's important for, for those of you, those of us going through kinds of deconstruction and people who are close to you, I encourage you to plant this word or to bind this word reconstruction with deconstruction because we need to rebuild better. Uh, so many of you know the pastor John Mark Comer. Uh, in, he was in the Portland area. He's now uh, retired from, from that church. But uh, he's pastoring in Portland. In Portland I mean, Many of you know like, the experience of, of what Portland is like. It's, like. it's an eclectic place. It's a melting pot for lots of ideology. It's a really progressive place. And Comer and other pastors in the Portland area, some of you perhaps heard me say this, uh, talk about what they, they're calling the New Oregon Trail. Some of you don't know that the Oregon Trail was actually something that happened in American history. It was not just the video game that you played in fourth and fifth grade. Um, you know, where your family members died of dysentery or cholera or got bit by a snake. They're calling the the New Oregon trails this phenomenon where kids from middle America uh, pack up because they want to get out of the Bible Belt, out of the middle of their evangelical circle. They move to cities like Portland where they begin to openly question things they didn't have the courage to question at home. They end up in in progressive Christian circles, which is, is often just a stopover on their way to leaving Christianity altogether. And if it didn't happen so often, you know, like it's almost comical to many of the pastors who are in Portland because they see the story happening again and again and again. It almost feels typical or, or even a kind of cliche that many of these people are living into. What they don't know, and what they're trying to convince many of these people who are asking the questions about their faith for the very first time is there can be reconstruction on the other side. And he says, uh, and Mark, uh, John Mark Comer, quoting another author, said there can be, for many of these people, a second naivete, meaning on the other side of asking some of the difficult questions, on the other side of disillusionment with the church, or uh, there can be a kind of renewed, innocent belief in God. And it's, and it's not an innocence or a naivete that's uninformed by life, it's one that's been weathered, but, but God has been given the gift of a new kind of innocent pathway believing and this can be something that we experience a renewed innocence and belief and i think it ought to be something that we ask the lord for some of you golly some of the stories of of harm by pastors and churches is just unbelievable you know i've i have uh, there was a time in pastoral ministry where i had i would say a low view of, of pastoral ministry thinking like like the priesthood of all believers we're all in ministry and that's true I'm like, we should just let anybody be a pastor who wants to, but I've come to believe and I've come to think that one of the primary things that happens when you put the title pastor in front of your name is you amplify your ability to hurt people. And some people in our church have been deeply hurt by pastors, and I can understand why you would be inclined to question the whole thing or throw the whole thing away. Some of you have been just deeply hurt when, uh, you know, perhaps you made some poor life choices, and church people were just so mean to you, or even worse, they acted like you didn't exist. Or maybe you had fair theological, intellectual questions, ideological questions about how the whole puzzle fits together, and you went to, you know, your church leaders, and they said, well, that's just an attack from the enemy that you need to pray through. That's not a good enough answer. There are better answers. God is the God of all truth. And so it may be for you that, it, that, that you need a kind of um, ecclesial, ecclesiastical ecclesial renewal, an ecclesial reconstruction where you make peace with the church again. It could be that you need a a relational or an emotional reconstruction where you're just so hurt by church people in the past that you need the Lord to help you make sense of that and to start fresh again. It could be that you need a kind of intellectual reconstruction. People have posed questions for which you didn't have an adequate answer. God is the God of all truth. He can handle that. Talk to Him about it. There can be on the, other, on the other side of deconstruction, reconstruction, and on the other side of reconstruction, there can be this second naivete. There can be this renewed innocence of belief. And I think perhaps more than anything else, one of the things that I just love about the, the birth narratives and all these stories surrounding the birth of Jesus and John the Baptist is this is not a, there's no dark origin story like superhero movies, <laughs> The answer to the outrage and cruelty and seriousness of our world comes in the form of beauty and joy and innocence. And we need this because darkness cannot drive out the dark. Only light can do that. And the good news is that that the light of Jesus Christ is shining in the world. Jesus has been born. There is good news. There is hope. There is cause for belief. One of the most tragic verses in the New Testament is the light shines and yet men loved darkness instead of light. If we walk in the light as He's in the light, we'll have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. The light now shines in the world. Our eyes may need a period to adjust, but there's this invitation to live in the light. That's the good news of Christmas. The light has come. The good news of Advent is that the light is coming again. It can be difficult to believe, it can be difficult to to keep a tender heart in such an outraged and a cruel world, but there's cause for optimism. As Christians, we don't believe in timeless truths. We don't believe, we don't even have just blind faith. Our hope is tethered, is anchored to objective realities. We believe that in the middle of human history, God took on flesh and was born in the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus gave us this alternate vision of of how to be human, starting an alternate kingdom, an alternate like embassy of the heavens on earth. That Jesus died mysteriously for us. That somehow all of the garbage and sin and destruction of humanity was, he took it upon himself and in his resurrection he's offered us this opportunity to live in the light. He's offered us this, this new opportunity to live with dignity, to have our sins forgiven, to, to, to walk in newness of light, no longer defined by our destructive tendencies, but living into our baptismal identity as sons and daughters of God. The resurrection of Jesus was for us this, this anger for our souls, this objective thing that happened in human history that gave birth to the church and amazingly, For as poorly as the church has conducted itself over the last 2,000 years, the whole story hasn't gone completely off the rails. God has always uh, preserved for himself a remnant, and and we're heirs of the story. The hope that Mary and Elizabeth bore in their bodies was, was, you know, in the words of Gandalf, kind of a fool's hope. What difference is this going to make in the world? It's the hope that's changed the world, and so Maybe you're a person who's struggling to believe. I think that there can be hope for you. You may even grieve your loss of faith. I think that there can be a reconstruction on the other side of disbelief. And for those of you, those of us who just find it difficult to keep believing, we're still waiting for the final coming of Christ to restore and renew all things. I believe that if we ask him for it, it's, it's to his delight to renew and restore our hope. So what are the th- what are where are there dark shadows in your heart? Where are there places where you need Him to resurrect you today? Where has the house of your faith become deconstructed or destructed due to just the outrage of our world or the the, the poor behavior of those who follow Jesus or the cruelty of of our world? How much you just invite the Lord Jesus to rebuild something new in you, to give you just a plant that the desire to to want to believe or to want to want to believe to want to walk with Him and. And how might this week in particular, as we lead to Chris- Christmas, might you make room in your heart for the Lord Jesus? Let's pray together. Hmm. Lord to think about. When you interacted with Thomas, you said, "Blessed are those who believed and yet have not seen." It doesn't always feel that blessed. Sometimes I think it would be considerably more blessed to have seen you face to face, and yet to trust that you're true to your word. I pray, Lord Jesus, that your blessing would come on us today. That in your mercy, you would give us the grace to continue to believe. That in our outraged world, you'd help us to be people of peace. That in our cruel world, you'd help us to be people of true love. Not merely tolerance, but a true and deep and abiding love willing the good of the other. And then in an age of skepticism and cynicism, that you give us the gift of a renewed capacity for simple belief and innocent belief. Jesus, I pray that you'll comfort the people who are here today who are missing a loved one who won't celebrate Christmas with them this year. I pray for those who are stressed about Christmas because the state of their family or the state of their hearts, those who will be there, those who won't be there. I pray for those who are burdened about a a friend or family member who no longer believes. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you'd move in power that, that uh, these people that we love would have this awakening like the prodigal did. I could go home. My dad still loves me. And I pray that like a loving father, they would hear you calling their name. Jesus, there are people that we've given up on praying, on, praying for because none of our last prayers have been answered, and they feel beyond your reach. Stretch out your hand. Perform miracles in the name of Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus. I pray that uh, it will be true of me, and it will be true of our community. That as as we lean into the Lord Jesus, that we would effervesce with joy. Give us a deep uh, belly laugh. Give us a a, a uh, an enduring smile, not a false happiness, but a deep sense that you're okay, that you're you're like guiding creation toward its intended end. Therefore we can take the pressure off ourselves. And as we come, Lord Jesus, to receive communion today, I pray that uh, you'd be with us as you are present with your disciples in the breaking of the bread and wine. Remind us that you love us, heal the sick, forgive the sinner, unite the church, give faith to those who doubt. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone.